This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Tom, Rich and myself have been up to on a Thursday morning, a very windy Thursday morning, proper weather down here at our Wassel Dome in Expo City, Dubai on the 29th of February. Uh, that includes looking at Bitcoin at over 60,000 and wondering how far it could go. Uh, looking at the UAE economy with 5% growth as predicted by authorities uh, and speaking to not one but two chief economists this morning. Uh, one on that GDP prediction for the UAE. We've spoken to Khadija Hack, chief economist and head of research at Emirates NBD. Uh, we've also been speaking to the chief economists from India and Indonesia for HSBC to find out about FDI flows into India. And we've been taking a look at our surroundings from an entertainment point of view. The plans of Expo City Dubai when it comes to putting on very big events. Uh, We've been speaking to their executive creative director in charge for entertainment and experiences. Right, let's look in more detail at one of our top stories this morning. Bitcoin hitting $60,000, uh, climbing up towards its all-time high from November 2021 of uh, just under 70000 Tom, you were having a chat yesterday about where Bitcoin was going in general. Yeah, I mean, just looking at where we're at at the moment, obviously heralding the fact that it went north of that 60 mark yesterday. It is up again this morning, 61,361. Yesterday, it was what, sitting at the 59 and a half mark or so when we were joined uh, by Sakar Erkat, who's a partner at Trade Dog Group. Uh, basically, uh, Sakar has been here for many, many uh, years, uh, championing all things cryptocurrencies and more specifically uh, Bitcoin, which is the big outlier of uh, the cryptocurrency landscape. Uh, that has had its day or certainly had the last couple of weeks in the sun. Sakura was here uh, yesterday talking about the possibility of it going north of 60. It's obviously since then did exactly that. Bitcoin, I asked, is it going one way or can we expect to see it come back on itself a little bit? As when you zoom out long enough, this is only going one way mm. and it's going up. So there's already reports out there, don't listen to me saying it, there's already reports by Fidelity, by, uh, by large institutions, calling for a $250,000 Bitcoin by next year. Michael Saylor calls for a million dollar Bitcoin by 2030. I believe that there's, the sky's the limit, because think of it this way. There's 60 million millionaires in the world, mm-hmm. right? But there's only 19.6 million uh, Bitcoin in circulation. Mm-hmm. If every millionaire just decides I want one Bitcoin, what will that do to the market, right? If more and more institutions, and we're seeing institutional capital flow in at an at a immense space. For the last two days, these Bitcoin ETFs have traded for higher than $3 billion on a daily basis. That is an impressive amount. But really, when you look at it and zoom out on the global markets, there's still so much room for growth. It's being called the, the, uh, the digital gold. Mm. I think it's much better than gold because really, what can you do with gold? My Bitcoin, I can lend it out. I can move across borders with it. I can transact in it. And if, if we're just comparing it to gold, and I'm, you know, I don't think it's a fair comparison. You'd rather compare it to properties. Mm-hmm. It, gold is a tri- $10 trillion market today. How much room for growth does that leave us? What can you do with gold? There's a question for us this morning. Jewelers might have something to say with it. Dentists, posh dentists for rap stars and things like that might have something to say about it. Uh, but uh, we also got Saka's thoughts on the industry as a whole. Yeah, yeah, we get very carried away with Bitcoin with good reason as well. They are a standard bearer, if you like. 
But what about the other cryptos or the other coins, if you like? Are they benefiting from this positive haze around Bitcoin? Nothing compares to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is truly decentralized. It doesn't have a governing authority around it. It's truly code as law. And, and with that, the history goes that every time Bitcoin pulls away and, and starts pulling up, the other tokens start pulling up again. And it's, it's rather straightforward because a lot of people enter into this market buying Bitcoin for, for the first time. So with that, the entire market starts moving, moving upwards. But again, don't think of it as what is this going to do today? What is this going to do tomorrow? Think of it this way. 10 years from now, someone's going to look at you and say, hey, you were there when Bitcoin was just starting at around 50K. What did you do? Mm. And what really got me buying in, 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 in regular amounts is that someone said, what were you going to say to your son when he asked you how many Bitcoins did you buy me when Bitcoin was still affordable, mm. right? Don't think of this as a short-term asset. Think of this as a long-term asset. With that, there's a lot of opportunity, but obviously there's huge risk at the same time, and you should be aware of that. Well, I know what I'm saying to my son. Keep your hands off my Bitcoin, son. Go get your own, okay? If you didn't see it coming, then it's your fault. Nothing to do with me. Uh, Sakurerika, their partner, Trade Dog Group. Oh, as we've discovered this morning about Richard Dean's Bitcoin trading history. What will you say to your children, Richard? Uh, I, will, I will quote Warren Buffett at them. So um, I bought Bitcoin about $20,000, I don't know, a few, a few years ago. Uh, then it went up to 60-odd thousand. I sold it about 34000 a while ago. So I made money, but clearly I would have made more if I'd hold on to it. This is what Warren Buffett has to say. He hates Bitcoin, thinks it's a load of nonsense, in his own words. If you owned all the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for 25 bucks, I would not take it because what would I do with it? I'll have to sell it back to you one way or the other. It isn't going to do anything. He would rather buy farmland or real estate. He described his views on farmland and rental properties versus Bitcoins thus. The difference between productive assets and something that depends on the next guy paying you more than the last guy got. The apartments are going to produce rent and the farms are going to produce food. But if you've got all the Bitcoin in the world, I'm back wherever anonymous Bitcoin founder Satoshi was. He makes similar arguments about gold as well, referencing Tom's point about the yellow metal earlier on. You can't get the lease on a Lambo from a field of wheat, though, can you, eh? <laughs> if it's a big enough field, you can. <laughs> you can. If it's, if it's the entire state of Ohio, <laughs> you probably can, can't you? <laughs> All right, we are also looking at the UAE economy this morning. More on that to come on the back of those predictions uh, that we could see 5% growth this year. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Looking in more detail at one of our top business stories, which is the UAE economy minister saying that they expect to see 5% growth, GDP growth, in the country this year. To put that figure in context for us, I am joined by the Emirates NBD Chief Economist, Katija Hack, also their Head of Research. Katija, good morning. Good morning, Brandy. Let's start by putting that number in context. I know we don't have full year figures yet for 2023, but what we do we know about how the economy grew last year? So we know in the first half of the year, growth was around 3.7% for the UAE. Uh, Non-oil sector growth was significantly higher than that, um, but we did obviously have oil production cuts which weighed on the headline number. Uh, Abu Dhabi's non-oil sector actually performed much better than Dubai's non-oil sector, even through the third quarter of 2023. So we expect that trend to continue as well. Why was that? 
Um, I think Abu Dhabi's had a huge number of public sector investment projects. So if you look at where they've been investing in on transport infrastructure, on the ports, on clean energy, um, this really has been a big support for the non-oil sector in the Emirate. Which is one of the other very interesting comments that Minister al Mari made, the fact that non-oil GDP, the contribution, is up at three quarters now of the, the total amount that the country raises. Yes, that's right. It's been hovering around 70% for several years, um, but he did say that 73% was the highest that they've seen in terms of the share of non-oil GDP uh, to the overall economy ever. So, so that certainly does suggest that the diversification process is uh, paying dividends. It is working. We are seeing faster non-oil sector growth, and that is helping to reduce the reliance on oil and gas. Okay, well, let's look at what you are expecting to see this year. As you mentioned, oil production last year, a drag on GDP in general. What do you expect to see in terms of production and prices this year? So we don't expect to see any increase in oil and gas production this year on average. Um, We are still in an environment where there is a concern about weak demand for oil. um, And so we don't think OPEC Plus is really going to be able to increase production significantly. Um, So we're not expecting a positive contribution to GDP this year from oil and gas. The non-oil sectors we think are going to be pretty strong still. So 4.5% is our forecast for non-oil sector growth, um, which then gives us a headline GDP growth number of 3.3%, which is a bit lower than the 5% that the minister talked about yesterday and also lower than the central bank's forecast, which assumes uh, a big increase in oil and gas production this year. Is there any other reasons that yours is coming in lower? No, I think it's probably just the assumption around oil production that's the difference there. Okay, well, if we look at the areas that did see the biggest growth, not necessarily the biggest contribution last year in GDP. We've got transport, we've got construction, finance and hospitality. What do you expect to drive the non-oil economy this year? So this year we expect it to be public sector investment. So the cyclical drivers like tourism and transport are probably going to slow this year. We've had that full rebound from the pandemic. um, And so growth rates will be much more normal along what we were seeing um, pre-2019. So we think the the, uh, real driver of growth is going to be public sector investment uh, with uh, consumption and private sector investment perhaps uh, slowing. With lower oil production, though, what does that mean for the the balance sheet? So we still think that the government in the UAE will run a consolidated surplus. Uh, We have an estimate of around 4% of GDP on the budget surplus for this year. And that's really because they've been very conservative in terms of their budgeting. So, uh, you know, they're able to withstand lower oil prices uh, and still maintain the spending plans that they had announced uh, several years ago. And we got inflation figures this week for Dubai coming in at 3.6%. That's a bit of an uptick. What for the country as a whole is your outlook for inflation this year? So we think inflation will moderate. Uh, Housing is going to be a big driver of CPI going forward. Um, But we think the other components of the basket will see slower inflation. So services, food, transport. um, And on average, we think we'll get inflation around 3% this year. So slightly lower than where we were in 2023. What's that going to feel like on the ground, though? It depends on what you spend on, Brandy. Um, if you're buying a, you know, an expensive villa or renting an expensive villa, then your rents are probably going to go up quite a lot. Um, but I think the encouraging thing is that we are seeing rents come down in certain areas um, year on year at the end of 2023, which suggests we are seeing some moderation in terms of rental price growth, again, in certain areas. Okay, well, let's look at some potential headwinds, particularly weighing in on businesses and individuals. Your view on interest rate cuts and what they could mean uh, for the private sector this year. So we have three 25 basis point rate cuts uh, penciled in for the second half of the year. Now, 
both hikes and cuts tend to work with a bit of a lag. So we're really only expecting the positive support for investment in 2025. Um, but certainly it means that we won't see an additional drag uh, in terms of further hikes uh, impacting economic activity. So far, the UAE economy has been pretty resilient to higher interest rates, um, but we are hopeful that lower interest rates will come back and support private sector investment uh, and also uh, households. Are the headwinds anything else to be cautious of? Uh, I think slower global growth is always a concern. So far, you know, the US economy has been pretty resilient. We did have a slight downward revision to Q4 GDP for the US, uh, which came in last night. Um, and obviously, we've got a, a recession in the Eurozone and the UK and Japan. So I think this is something we need to bear in mind. The UAE is an open economy. What happens in the rest of the world does impact us here as well. Khadija Hack, uh, even Chief Economist and Head of Research at Emirates MBD. Thank you very much for joining us down here at Expo City Dubai this morning. It's a pleasure. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We're talking about the Indian economy now. Delighted to be joined in our pop-up studio at Expo City Dubai by HSBC's Chief Economist for India. Also covers the ASEAN region out of Singapore, Pranjal Bandari. Good to have you with us. Thanks for your time. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're in Dubai to speak at an HSBC conference. You're going to be telling the the India story to your audience and you're telling it to us now. I was looking at one of your reports just a, a week ago, the PMI data came out and the headline was, it doesn't get better than this. What's happening? Yes, absolutely. You know, India's economy is growing at a fast clip and it's just not this year. It was last year and it was also the year before that. So three year, successive years of strong growth. Uh, manufacturing growth was strong through last year. This year, services growth has picked up too. When we look at new orders, they're at a decade high. When we look at input cost pressures, they're at a three and a half year low. Corporate margins are improving. You know, there's a lot of dynamism and growth is on a good, good track. It's an election year, just a few weeks until the election starts in India. For an incumbent like Narendra Modi, who's been there for 10 years, couldn't really be much better, could it? I think so. You know, growth is strong and there's good amount of macro stability, which basically means inflation is low, the trade deficit, the fiscal deficit, government imbalances, all of these things are falling. You know, in the past, when India used to grow at a fast clip for a few years, suddenly inflation used to blow up and we're not seeing those kind of things now. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it can't get better than this. <laughs> So the opposition obviously trying to land a few economic punches on the Modi administration. Difficult when the headline numbers are so good. But we spoke to one economist from the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi recently who said, yes, it's great for affluent people like her and you and the Ambani's who are having a wedding this weekend. But what about the hundreds of millions of people in rural India who are not benefiting from that boom. Is there any merit to that argument? Well, look, it's true that a small group of people, which I call New India, which makes up 15% of GDP, it involves all of these high-tech sectors like, like mobile phone manufacturing, services exports, the digital public infrastructure. You know, this group is driving much of India's growth and it doesn't employ very many people. That is true. But the, but the hope is that over time, New India pulls up Old India. Old India has the majority of the people. It has agriculture, it has small-scale manufacturing and we're seeing some of that already you know for instance construction is doing very well you know which 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 involves more people than just you know a, a chosen few uh, you know we have uh, other sectors that are doing well for example uh, you know agriculture parts of agriculture are picking up because of efficiency gains uh, a lot of people who never got access to bank credit are getting access to bank credit for the first time before because of fintech so 
there are pathways in which new India is being able to lift up old India, but it's going to be a multi-year process. It's not going to be immediate. Let's talk about Narendra Modi and his visit to the UAE just a couple of weeks ago. He was here to speak at a world government summit. He was here to open a temple as well. And of course, trade relations between India and the UAE, historically strong and getting stronger. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. First of all, though, let's just hear from Narendra Modi. He spoke in Dubai, mainly in Hindi, but there's a bit of English in here as well. Here's Narendra Modi. Ease of living, ease of justice, ease of mobility, Ease of innovation or ease of doing business go. He's a regular visitor to the UAE and vice versa. What's happening to those ties? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, UAE, uh, Middle East, India, you know, we've had like relationships which are a century old. Uh, I think uh, in the 1940s, somehow the relationship became quite narrow. India was mostly buying oil from the Middle East. Middle East was buying food from India. But I think we're in a position now where again the ties are deepening and the kind of things we are selling to each other are really rising. Like India is buying aerospace equipment from the Middle East. Uh, you know, Middle East is buying all kinds of electric vehicles, uh, mobile phones, metals from India. So I think the trade is really uh, is, is really interesting. And it's not just trade, it's also investment. Uh, you know, UAE, India, cumulative FDI flow was $6 billion last year. Uh, Middle East uh, FDI into India has been growing at 60% per year for the last three years. So there is a lot of dynamism in the relationship. I think it comes a lot from geopolitics, you know, where uh, many countries are finding, you know, near shore French shoring, striking new relationships, bilateral deals. Uh, and I think with common values of cooperation, openness, I think it's, it's great that Middle East and India are sort of increasing their uh, relationship. Some here in the UAE would like an even deeper relationship, particularly when it comes to aviation. We were speaking to the CEO of Fly Dubai, low-cost airline based here in Dubai. He would love to have more flights going in and out of India, as would Emirates, as would Etihad. But of course, they're restricted uh, by the, the bilateral agreements that the UAE and India has. Officials in India say, look, it's time for our airlines, the new Air India and so on, to get a little bit of that traffic and a lot more east-west traffic. There's also issues of protectionism in India being discussed this week in Abu Dhabi. Piyush Goel, I think, was speaking yesterday about India and subsidies on agriculture and fisheries in general terms as an economist. Is India being a little bit too protectionist at the moment or just looking after itself? Well, look, looking after itself, uh, at the end of the day, everybody wants food security, energy security. Remember, this year has been a year of El Nino, where weather has been quite unfavorable and rice production in the region has been pretty bad. And, you know, most countries need to feed their people. So, you know, all of that will come in. But I do think the relationship between India and Middle East is far more dynamic today than it was a couple of years ago. I think it started with SEPA, which was basically about bilateral trade. But now with all of these, you know, bilateral investment treaties, there's also a lot of movement to protect each other's FDI. So it's not just trade, it's also investment. And, you know, things take time, but I think things are growing pretty quickly. There was so much excitement at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year about India. If I heard the phrase, India, the world's fastest growing a major economy once, I heard it a hundred times. Yeah. Is there maybe a risk that there's a, a bit of an asset price bubble in India at the moment, particularly with the stock market, Nifty 50 and Sensex hitting record highs? As a, as a macroeconomist, you look at these things. Are there any alarm bells, any red flags there for you? 
Well, look, there's always a question of valuations being high, uh, but there are a lot of many micro stories which basically show that when big companies become very big, they get market share, they can be extremely profitable for very long. So some value, some high valuations can be justified, but you know you have to be careful and you have to do your due diligence. But I think the bigger story in India is that it's a multi-year growth that we're that that I think we're staring at. I think there are many new sectors that have come into India. You know, the manufacturing and exports of high-tech goods professional services exports a big story india is no longer the call center it's not a software solution provider it sells all kinds of professional services from legal medical uh, engineering uh, to the rest of the world i think these are sector which sectors which have a lot of dynamism and then its own sort of you know new new world like the digital public infrastructure the whole startups ecosystem attracting a lot of fdi providing real economy sort of solutions to a lot of problems indians have had in terms of connectivity uh, so i think it is a multi-year story which uh, people want to be a part of. And of course, a lot of people making a lot of money. Two Indians in the top 20 of the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. One of them, the Ambani family. Big wedding this weekend in Gujarat. Is that going to move the GDP of Gujarat? People saying hundreds of millions of dollars might be spent on it. Well, it's a large country. It's a great wedding, but uh, not sure it's going to add to GDP growth. Listen, it's great talking to you. We'll let you get back to your event with HSBC here in Dubai. I know you're staying in the downtown area next to HSBC's headquarters. So thank you for coming up here to Expo City Dubai. I know there's been a fly annoying you throughout this interview, but you've manfully or dutifully <laughs> carried on. So appreciate that. The thoughts there of Pranjal Bandari, Chief Economist for HSBC in India. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's play Where in the Dome is Thomas Urquhart. He's out somewhere with the Executive Creative Director for Entertainment and experiences from Expo City Dubai. Yeah, I can still see you guys and some big deliveries being made up to the main <laughs> stage there. So we'll be heading back very shortly. But you're right, yeah, we're out to the bow. We are under the El Wassel Dome yet again as we continue uh, our broadcast live down here uh, at Expo City Dubai. Why have we come out this way? Well, because, as I've been promised, uh, they've put the two funnest people in the dome together here to talk all things fun, all things entertainment. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome uh, to the show the Executive Creative Director, Enter entertainment and experiences at Expo City Dubai. It's the ECD from ECD. Anna Abul, uh, Amna Abul Hall joining us alliance alongside me at the moment. Amna, bless you. Thanks so much indeed for your time. Thank you and good morning. Thanks for your time today and thanks for looking after us throughout the course of this week. Of course, well. it's, it's your home as uh, we always say. It's very, you, you, you must stop saying that because before <laughs> you know it, we'll be setting up home up there. You know, we would love that. Claiming <laughs> rights. Amna, listen, let's talk about all things entertainment. Let's talk about your extraordinary calendar that you've already put in place and the future as well. Um, we are coming off the back of a large event. The Untold Festival was also home here at Expo City Dubai. Uh, and was that one of was that an event that you were intrinsically involved in from an Expo City perspective, or was it one that the the owners, the organisers, took ownership of themselves? Actually, what's really interesting in uh, Expo City, we always look at experiences rather than just a music or a concert or an event. Uh, we've been working with the Untold team since three years now. Mm. 
how can we make it an experience that's unforgettable, not only for people who would love to hear music, but also for families? Mm. How can someone comes to a place with their whole family, kids enjoy, they enjoy, and their uh, whole, even grandparents were here. So that was an interesting dynamic. We always say Expo City is a home for everyone, mm. and we're building communities by bringing experiences for every individual in the family. And with Untold, it's yes, it's a mega event, and it is a mega event in a way that you will experience it when you enter here, mm. because the way it is designed is based on the footprint of different venues in the city. Of course, the heartbeat of Al-Wasl, of the city, and then we have the big stage in different locations. We really wanted to create a new style of mega festival in a very curated, we want the right time, mm. where not only the city uh, is mature for some uh, such big events, but also to already build the community for the past two years after Expo ended. And we feel that it came in the right time, and it started in a very nice way, and hopefully it will continue Crossed. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Listen, to that point, and I know there are a number of different events that we can focus on, but given that Untold is fresh in our memory at the moment, uh, and given it, it's a perfect example of what can be achieved here at Expo City Dubai, and I think it brings together uh, rather beautifully all three of those pillars, the live, work and play, all sort of comes together in an extended venue like that. It was a large undertaking, as we well know, as long-time uh, residents and citizens of the UAE, that uh, when we have an event here, uh, resident citizens, you know, they like to sort of pick a few faults, etc. We were amazed at the Business Breakfast mm. in Dubai Eye that there were so few complaints coming out of an event like that, especially on the scale of that. Now, what's that down to? Is that down to the infrastructure being in place already? Uh, yes, but also when we create any event, we think of the experience of the individual from his home to back his home. Right. And we always wanted people to leave. It's like when we go to big theme parks around the world, we always suffer till we reach our cars. Mm. And I think when, when we created this infrastructure during Expo, we thought of these parking lots. But also, the best part is that they're easily connected to the roads. Mm. You have one bridge that takes you towards uh, Jumeirah side. You have another bridge that takes you to Abu Dhabi side. So it is really interwined with the city. Mm. And without that, you would never have that ease of going out with a good experience. When we think of every festival, we think of their, the capacity that we are achieving, but also the direction where we are programming the uh, festival. Because we went from Al Wasl, where we connected the metro, till the largest parking. Because we know that the guests, are, it will be a massive uh, event. The week before, we had a Break the Block, another yeah. community festival. But at the same time, we had a light art festival. So we wanted to really achieve this different event at the same time for different guest groups. Because if I am um, a mother and I have kids and I'm with my husband, how can I enjoy and not just take care of the kids? Mm. I will go, if I'm an artist, enjoy the art piece. My husband will be doing uh, uh, with his son, let's say, uh, BMX or skateboard in Cyril. But then the teenagers will go to break the block. We really thought of it of that way. But before locating it in each, each venue, we think of the parking lots. Mm. Which park parking can fit that capacity? So people continue to sing after the music, yeah. continue to laugh after a comedy act, continue to enjoy until they reach home. We really wanted that experience to be a full day experience rather than just come to the plot, enjoy, and then God bless you. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning, the calendar has been long and varied, and I think diversity and variation is key to you. You just mentioned uh, art events there. We had the Dubai 92 cycling event up here as well. We've had entertainment 
entertainment events. Obviously, uh, with the conference centres here, it's attracted a number of big uh, exhibitions and conferences as well. How important is that sort of diversity for you in such a huge and diverse space? I think it's really important to create this ecosystem yep. before our residentials come and live here. Because if we created and foster a community that can work, play and live at the same time, this is where when the residentials will come, they will not feel left out yeah. from the city. And we're trying to build that until the first tenant come and live here. And we thought of every act of every aspect of a genre. Even now we're, we're diving into the genre of music. Mm -hmm. So you have electric festival, you have a jazz festival. You have, we wanted to have something for everyone. Mm -hmm. But also we don't forget the community festival we're doing. We have Winter City. That's been a really an interesting it success, one. Isn't it? But we also want to always tie it up with crisp with uh, sustainability. So we made it like a mission for children that the North Pole is melting. Mm. And how can you save Santa by doing all your workshops? The same thing we're doing now with Ramadan. We're creating the similar, I would say, um, structure of how we did it with Christmas and workshop, and we're doing it with Ramadan. Mm. We really wanted to create this universal, I would say, community that will come together and bring back expos universal family mm. into Dubai since it's a it's a city with uh, with many nationalities yeah. and everyone's celebrating different uh, festivals around the year why don't we bring them all in this four kilometer footprint so the Ramadan festivities down here uh, at Expo City Dubai uh, it, within the next couple of weeks etc as soon as the holy month uh, begins 30 seconds remaining with yeah. you what's your message to event organizers out there at the moment they're looking for new spaces unique spaces come and see you guys please come see us and we will add whatever creativity you think you might need and we would work together and make sure your experience is granted in the best possible way ever. Listen, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you. uh, thanks so much indeed for inviting us down here as well. It's been an absolute pleasure thank broadcasting you. live from your home, which you say is, um, is really your home. Uh, uh, Amna Abuhul, who is, of course, the ECD for the ECD, the Executive Creative Director, Entertainment Experiences at Expo City Dubai. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.